Thanks, Brother Russell, and good morning once again, everybody. Excellent. My voice is a little bit croaky, so I'll uh, try and conserve it as much as I can and not yell at you too much as we go through. Well, our study this morning is called Works and Rewards, and it's a, I suppose we're building on some of the, the concepts we laid yesterday, so we'll continue on with this consideration of how these things all play out at the judgment seat. Just a couple of, uh, I suppose, initial concepts and some of the ideas that are going to set the scene for our investigation this morning. All our lives, I suppose, as we've grown up, it's been drummed into us um, that we're saved by grace and we're saved through faith. And we've told over and over again that salvation is a gift and we're not saved by works. We can't earn our salvation. We can't impress God with our works to, to sort of... Um, get salvation by that in, in that method we can't do works to sort of earn brownie points or to build up the balance sheet on one side of the ledger or, or, or the other and we know we know these things we've been we've had these things taught to us since we were kids in, in some regard and yet and yet also we've come across many many references in scripture and there's been references throughout our life as well that our works are brought up at the judgment seat and the works are sort of front and center at the judgment seat so there's this sort of uh, conflict there in our, in our thinking to some degree. How do we, how do we reconcile these, these ideas and these concepts? And even, uh, you know, today amongst, you know, I've got teenage kids or even older than teenage kids and uh, I have a little bit to do with young people's groups and young people find this as a bit of a struggle. You know, the idea that, you know, your works is almost a dirty word, you know, to say things about works and, 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 and in any way implying that works have any involvement in our um, in, 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 in the judgment seat or anything like that. So it's a, it's a, it's, there's, there is an element of confusion in, in all this to some degree. So hopefully um, we might try and clear some of that up today and we'll see that works are closely associated with the judgment seat and yet the concepts that we've, we, we know are true of that works don't sort of earn salvation is also true as well and hopefully that will come through uh, in what we look at. As I said, we're going to build on some of the concepts we looked at yesterday. We, we sort of looked at this idea that there are, this book, the Scripture records two types of recordings of our life. The book of life, in which our name is in. And we saw from Revelation 20 that the verdict about whether we are in the kingdom or not, whether we are saved or not, or whether we are rejected or not, is based on the book of life, our name being in that book. And yet we saw in that judgment seat scene that the books of our life were opened as well and, and we were judged according to the things written in the books, plural. So we need to sort of try and reconcile that a little bit this morning as well. But what we, what we have tried to do in the previous session is, I suppose, show that the, the verdict about our salvation is based on grace, but at the judgment seat our works are still considered and, and, and there is a decision made about those works and there is um, an evaluation of those works made, which is in some way separate from the verdict of salvation. So let's try and build on that a little bit this morning. And I'm going to introduce this concept now that we'll then we'll, we'll sort of follow through in the rest of our studies. This idea that if our name is in the book of life, to use this, this word picture or this analogy, I've sort of said well, we are in... Um, a zone here that I've just called the pale of salvation. We are in God's plan of salvation. We are, in essence, 
we, we, are, we are saved in that sense. Not, of course, ultimately that we, ha- we haven't been given immortality and there's always still the, 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 the possibility we could make shipwreck of our faith, etc. But while we remain in this book of life or this pale of salvation, we, are, we, are in the, we are, will be accepted by our Lord. And there are some conditions put on this idea. And we're going to look at these quotes in um, John, John 2 and John 4, etc., that talk about we, are, we can have confidence at the judgment seat if we abide in the light or if we walk in the light, sorry, or if we abide in him. So we're going to try and look at what that means as we go through as well. So if we are in the book of life, we will be recipients of God's grace, we'll be in the kingdom. However, the reality is our name can be removed from that book. And we saw... Uh, that referred to in some of those verses that I got you to read yesterday. A name can be removed, which means we are taken out of that zone, if you like, out of that pale of salvation. And we've got many examples in Scripture of people who either deliberately made a choice to walk out of that zone and to leave that zone of salvation, or who drifted out of that zone, or their very behaviour and attitude deems them to have left that zone in God's eyes. So, Judas, for example, went out, and there's a point made about that, that he went out and it was dark. You know, he went out into the, the world and he, he rejected the light. He was, instead of abiding in the light, in the presence of his Lord, he, he went out and put himself outside that. The prodigal son, in, in, the, in the parable um, in Luke 15, he goes out from his father's house and he wants, to, he wants to sample the world. So he leaves physically in that parable, goes out into a world of darkness in that sense, and then comes to his senses later on and comes back in to the family. And there are many other warnings in Scripture of people who are either, you know, in, in, in a path, in a decline, uh, that is eventually going to lead to them being outside that zone as well and, you know, outside God's pale of salvation. So what, just to quickly recap what we looked at in our first session, we, we sort of said the normal view of the judgment seat is this idea we give account... We receive praise and admonition and we are accepted and rejected. And we sort of said, well, maybe based on the parable of the sheep and goats, it works slightly differently, that we are accepted or rejected, we give account, and then there's this receiving praise and admonition is is a a final part of the process. And it's probably a part that I personally haven't given much thought to because I suppose I've sort of grown up with the sort of binary view of the judgment seat. It's a verdict-based uh, process that you're in or out, and that's the sort of terminology. At the judgment, we're going to be in or out, in or out, and that's really all that I thought about the judgment: in or out, in or out. And it's really more than just in or out; it's much more layered than that. And there's this this concept of being rewarded at the judgment seat that I haven't really taken that that seriously because all I've been concerned about is in or out, and whether if, you know, I, I couldn't really care less about being rewarded or, or having praise given to me. It's been just about in or out has been the been the focus of my my particular view. Just quickly flick through here. I suppose the, the judgment seat conjures up for most of us the idea of a, of a court. I suppose that's the, the closest analogy we have when we try and picture the judgment seat or think about the judgment seat. And even the, the word itself, judgment seat, it's, uh, it, it conjures up a legal context. However, I'm going to suggest that it's not the best analogy to use when we think about what is actually taking place at the judgment seat. There are some major differences, major differences, which make that, that analogy a flawed analogy, really, when we try and relate it to the judgment seat. Um, 
the judgment seat is not like a human court in a number of very fundamental ways. One of the big differences is the judge already knows you. Now, in a human court situation, which a human court's trying to arrive at a verdict, that's, that's the whole um, sort of reason it's established and, and held because all the evidence is going to be presented and an impartial judge is going to listen to one side or the other, the prosecutor or the defendant, and he's going to make a final verdict on something. That's our idea of a court. It's sort of channeling everything to, to this final result. And so the judge is not allowed to know you in that case. It's got to be a blank canvas he's working with. And, and even to extremes that a, you know, a rapist in, who's committed a rape before, you can't even bring up that, that he's done it before in some cases because it would be prejudicious to the particular case being examined at that particular time. Um, and, and a judge has to recuse themselves or stand down if there's any connection with the defendant in any way at all. So, so that is a, that, 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 the concept and the, and the objective of a human court is not really analogous to what's going on at, the, at, at our judgment seat. And there's this other factor as well that's got to be brought to account here in our uh, sort of coming to grips with this. We are already, by virtue of the fact that we are in Christ, we are already declared righteous. That word righteous is, as many of us know, a legal term. It means that we've already been declared right or, or innocent or, um, have, you know, there, there's, there's the, the slate has been clean, really. Our garments are washed in the blood of the Lamb, so we're already forgiven. We're already innocent, in, in a sense. So how does that also play out in our judgment seat pictures as well? And there's some other little interesting differences too. You know, Romans 8 makes this big point. At the end of Romans 8, who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect? In, in, in essence, there's no prosecutor at the divine sort of judgment seat. There's no prosecutor, as there is in a human court, who, who sort of um, lays the charges and brings the evidence against us. The question is asked, who, who is at the judgment? Who's laying anything to the charge of God's elect? Is it God? No, no, it's not God. He just, he's the one who says we're innocent. He's justifying us. Is it Christ? No, he's there making intercession for us. He's our defense attorney, if you, if you like. So the, the whole analogy is not complete, is it? The human court analogy. And, and, I, and I think that's the mind picture many of us have of the judgment seat, and yet it's, it's a little bit flawed, as we'll see. Another analogy that I think is, is probably closer, of course no analogies are perfect, but this analogy I think is closer to what is actually being achieved at the judgment seat is the concept of a performance review. Now I don't know... If many of you are aware of it, not every job has these sorts of things, but in, in many occupations, in many companies, particularly if you work for a big, like a multinational firm or a big you know, pharmaceutical company or some sort of large government department, um, all the employees are subject to what's called an evaluation review or performance review. And it's often either annually on the, you know, the anniversary of your um, starting date or it could be a, a set time in the year. Sometimes it could be twice a year. Now, a performance review, you sit down with your manager usually and, um, or your immediate supervisor and you go through what you have done and what you may not have done in, in the carrying out of your, of your role. And so the job descriptions brought out, things like KPIs, which are performance indicators that you, have to, you should have worked towards, all these things are, are, are examined and you go through them and it's brought to your attention whether you've met them or whether you haven't met them, whether you've fallen short or whether you've actually achieved what you're supposed to have done. And 
you know, you, the goals that you set at the last performance review were sort of uh, analysed as well, and you, you go through this, this process. Now, the objective of the performance review is not to sack you or not to fire you. That's not the objective of the review. Sometimes in extreme cases it happens, particularly in America more, where their sort of labour laws are a little bit um, sort of looser than ours, that, you know, at your performance review, the supervisor could say, well, pack your bags and get out of here. You know, so, so that, that is an extreme result of a performance review. But that's not the objective, nor is it really what the performance review is all about. The performance review is trying to make you better and trying to improve your performance, which in turn in our capitalist system uh, increases the performance of the, of the business unit and then eventually the company and the results of the company, etc. So there's a, in our world, there's a selfish reason behind it. It's trying to, to better you in order to better the results of the company. In God's economy, we're going to see there's a reason that he does it as well. And it's, a, it's, it's not just a, a judicial verdict-based process. There is, there is um, self-improvement built into it. There is development built into it. There is this, this concept of, of God working in our lives and, and bringing us to glory. All part of that judgment seat process. So as we said, one of the objectives is to help us in a performance review understand ourselves because all of us have blind spots in that regard and even, even the business world appreciates that. So we identify weaknesses and we try and plan to overcome them. In fact, you've got to identify your own weaknesses in offering these things. So I used to always write, you know, I work too hard and all those sort of, you know, I give too much effort, just try too hard. But so, so we've got to try and identify our real weaknesses, not the, not the ones we're trying to tell the boss. Now, no one likes to come under scrutiny in any way. We don't like it at all. It's, and and, and um, I, I hope in any of my presentations so far, I haven't sort of trivialised the, 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 the judgment seat at all. I think... You know, even taking into account the quotes from First John two and First John four about boldness and confidence, there, there's a there's a context there, and there's there's a use of, of language there that we've got to take into account. It, w- it won't be a, a walk in the park in any any way at all. It, it'll be a, a you know the, the word fear is used in relationship to the judgment seat. We'll talk about that. But but it's not terror nonetheless, and, and there's a reason behind it. And no, no one, even with the performance review, I remember. Uh, when I worked for a company, we used to have performance reviews, and I remember the mornings of your performance review was very stressful. I mean, I used to, I couldn't eat breakfast that morning. Now, if those of you who know me know that's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty, that's a pretty big thing. So I was so churned up, I couldn't even have breakfast, you know, and walk past all the nice shops. And you know. So it's, it's a stressful thing to have a performance review. But, but deep down, as many people he had a performance review. Yep. Okay. So a few have done. Yep. Been through that process. Excellent. You know, you know it's not fun, and you're not looking forward to it. You, if you could skip it, you would take the option. But you deep down know it's actually for your own good. I'm not. You know, you might have a boss who's a psychopath and, and an idiot, and I, I, I understand that. But on on the whole, generally, we know it's for our own good. And even when things are pointed out to us that we've done wrong or we've failed. We sort of know deep down that he's right or she's right when, when that's pointed out to us. We know that. We know our weak. We sort of once a weakness is brought out, we sort of know that's true. And so, if we're fair income, we will try and work on that and uh, and, and make that um, go away or, or reduce it or whatever. And one of the other purposes of a performance review, particularly if you work for a sort of an American type company or a multinational company, there are bonuses and rewards attached to that. 
And we'll, we'll bring that up as well in, in, as we continue on with this analogy. Now, some of you may feel a little bit uncomfortable with that analogy. Um, think, well, I don't really like that that much. And I just, I just say, go back to the parables again and just think about, particularly the parable of the pounds and the parable of the talents. And in a sense, you can see this analogy is quite um, strong, isn't it? The won't look at it now. We haven't got time. But Matthew 25, the three servants are brought in, and they uh, they have to settle their account and they have to explain what they've done with their Lord's um, resources while he's been away. And also Luke 19 with the, the ten servants who get a pound each. They're told to occupy till I come, or, which means to do business while I'm away. Then they're called in and their performance is reviewed. So there is a, there is a, um, a sense that that is quite a genuine analogy to use and, and one I think that's, that's closer to what's been achieved than the court case analogy. So this brings us back to our... Our, our main objective this morning, looking at the, 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 the connection between works and grace and, and trying to reconcile these, these ideas. Um, look, we're, we're going to build on these, this, this chart a little bit further, and I have, there's aspects on this chart I haven't really um, explained or gone into yet, but basically we ask the question, why do we have this second stage of the judgment set? If, we're, if, we have, if, if, we, if it is true that there is this sense that we are accepted early on in the process, like the parable of the sheep and goats would indicate, and then a secondary process. What's the need for the secondary process? Well, we have to give account, and give account involves looking at our works or our actions in our life. And also our motives are examined. There's no doubt about that. And we're going to look at this word, um, fanaru, that that comes through in all these judgment seat verses that that implies this opening up and and a revealing of our inner man. So that happens. Well, we've already identified this as one of the objectives of that process to refine our character, to have our, our faults purged and to prepare us for immortality. That, that makes sense. I think we all, we all get that. And I think if you remember H.P. Mansfield's um, ideas on the purpose behind the judgment seat, that, that, that came out very clearly, this idea of preparing us for immortality. But there's also another objective of the judgment seat, which, and again, this is where I've said before, I never really sort of either cared about or took seriously or, or even sort of featured in my, my judgment seat sort of view, the idea of rewards and rebuke. That at the judgment seat, we are going to be rebuked and rewarded. And I think because we, we have connected being rebuked at the judgment seat, we've connected that with whether we're saved or not. And I think that's where the confusion for me has, has, has laid. We will be rebuked at the judgment seat, there's no doubt about that. But doesn't necessarily mean that we won't be saved or accepted by our Lord. And we're going to be praised for certain things. We might think, my goodness, how could I possibly be praised for anything? It doesn't, it sort of goes against, I suppose, everything I've thought about um, before about the judgment seat. But there's no doubt we're going to be praised for things we do at the judgment seat. There's so many references to this, this idea that you can't ignore it. And if, if we're looking at, the judgment seat being an overall verdict that you know all our actions and life is weighed up and then there's this one result that comes out of that. It doesn't make sense that we're ever going to, anyone would really be praised in that sense and rebuked and praised at the same time. But when we separate those processes, it, it sort of, to me, makes, makes a bit of sense. So let's go through it. Even yesterday we looked at this idea of the, the, the works being examined by the, by the blowtorch and whether we... We take that as referring to individuals or some refer it to the, um, 
the, the, the sort of leaders and the teachers in the ecclesia, the, the underlying principle is the same. The works are examined, the motives are examined as to whether they're gold or precious or just wood and stubble. The torch is applied. The scenario presented in 1 Corinthians 3 is this person's work is totally consumed. So his work was, might, have, might have been motivated by wrong reasons or for self-aggrandizement or whatever it might have been or even foolishness and, 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 and insensitivity, whatever it might have been, for some reason it's burnt, and yet it says he's still saved. So there's, a, there's this, this little disconnect between the salvation result of that person and the evaluation of their works in that particular case. And in that chapter as well, there's this emphasis on the idea of reward, which is connected to the works and separate from... The salvation event. So hopefully that makes sense. We are rewarded according to the works, or, or even if it's even if it is the, the leaders or the or the teachers in that case, the rewards go according to the works. In that scenario, this person receives no reward because his works are all consumed, and yet it says he's still saved. Yet that was through fire. So so keep that in mind. And so First Corinthians three says everyone will receive his own reward according to his labour. Okay, the connection between what he's done and rewards, and yet that's separate from salvation. That's separate from being saved. If any man's work abide, remember we looked at that yesterday, or survives, he receives a reward. It's mentioned again. If any man's work, work it should say work there, not word, is burned up, he suffers a loss, which we'll try and make some suggestions about as well. But he's still saved nonetheless. And that picture that is presented in First Corinthians 3 shows that difference between the works even all his works in that scenario being burnt up he's still saved so we want to make some sense of that we sort of looked at that yesterday that the works are totally destroyed but he's saved as well now we've again these are concepts we've been brought up with as as kids haven't we salvation is a gift from god eternal life's a gift you can't earn it and yet there's this connection between works and the judgment seat that we've sort of got to try and come to grips with. Um, for by grace you are saved through faith. It's a gift of God. So how is it a gift of God? And then if it's connected to our works, how then is it a gift? And, and we need to think about that. Now what I'm going to do very quickly then this morning is look at the reality of rewards for works. You, you can't deny it. It is so much a part of the judgment seat picture that you can't deny the, the connection between works and rewards. And also this idea of proportional rewards at the judgment seat. And again, that it goes against our idea of the gift of God and, and grace and, and given, given salvation as a gift. This idea that people are saved, yes, but there's, there's a proportion in, in, in the rewards we receive at the, uh, at the judgment seat. We've got to try and build all these things into whatever picture we have of the judgment seat eventually. Even, even this word, I mean the word's taken from a parable... And it seems to be the word that's used in nearly every song you have about the judgment seat and every play that I've ever been in on the judgment seat. Um, this idea of well done. And, and I find that, again, that word even is, is a little bit counterintuitive, isn't it? Well done. So you get to the judgment seat and it's well done. I think, really? Well, it's, isn't it a gift? Isn't it a, a gift from God? And, and even if any of us, even if we have the scarcity view that only a few are going to be saved, is anyone, even that few, really well done? Have they really done everything well it's sort of a an interesting concept isn't it that we try and come to grips with um as we as we try and look at this 
We're saved by grace, aren't we? Why is well done the big judgment seat word that pops up? Well, we'll see, hopefully see that it is a big part of the judgment seat. Um, and and it, is, it can be reconciled. Okay, I've put a lot of the quotes this morning up on the slides um, because if I, we looked them all up, we would just be here all day and I know no one wants to do that, particularly my wife, so I, you know, I can't go overtime when she's here. So invite me back another time, we can go overtime all you like. Um, just want to show the connection between works and rewards. And there's this Greek word, or the word according that we're going to look at in the, in the English Bible, according is in the, King, in the King James anyway. It's this Greek word hos, which means... Um, in the manner or in like manner or like even as. It's, it, it shows a connection between the two things, hos. So it's translated here mainly according, and I'll put, I'll put it in red. Revelation 22 verse 12. Behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me. So there's the idea of reward. To give every man according as his work. I think it's singular there, yes. As his work shall be, according, hos. So the connection between... His work and the reward is, is, is really clear there. Matthew 16, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he shall reward every man according, hos, to his work. Revelation 2, verse 23, I am he that searches the reins in the hearts, and will give unto every man, every one of you, sorry, according, hos, according to his works. 1 Peter 1, 17, The Father who without respect of persons judges according... To every man's work, and uh, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. So, so here's this connection of, of work and um, the reward, and we, we want to try and delve into that a little bit as we go through. Uh, I don't need to go into that. Okay, so works and reward. We've established that there's a connection. We now quickly establish that there's a connect, there's this proportional concept that, that plays out in, in the giving of rewards. We've got hints of it in, in a parabolic sense, haven't we, in the, in the parables. Matthew 25 says, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. And we sort of start to get this, this idea of a, a proportional response. Probably more clearer in the parable of the, the pounds or the miners, as someone said the other day. Um, in Luke 19, your pound has gained 10 pounds, have authority over 10 cities. So you can see the results that he achieved is, is proportional and connected to the reward he's given. And then the, the next um, servant that comes along, he'd achieved five um, pounds out of the one, he gets authority over five cities. And then interestingly enough, later on in the parable, the person who doesn't... Re- um, use his talent, has it taken from him and given to somebody else. I want to try and think how, how that plays out too in the, in the whole uh, rewards scenario. Now, we also, on, on, the, on the negative side of the ledger, so, so rewards are given proportionally, but also rebuke and punishment appears to be proportional as well. Hinted at in a few of the statements of our Lord, which, which are sort of a little bit enigmatic, but, but they do imply this idea. Luke 12 says, and that servant which knew his Lord's will, so he knew, he knew it, he did something wrong sort of very consciously, shall be beaten with many stripes. So there's this idea of many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes, so he sort of did it ignorantly. Um, he didn't quite know 
he was doing something wrong, even though he should have, uh, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. Try, just try and work that through into the judgment seat process. In the, in the going through of our life, in the, in the examination of, our, of what we've done and what we haven't done, it appears that some people get a harder time and get rebuked and, and receive more um, uh, castigation or rebuke from our Lord than, than others may who have not had same, the same advantages or opportunities that others have had. Now this is interesting, Matthew 10, again on the idea of reward. He that receives, I don't know if you can all see that, but I'll, I'll read it anyway. He that receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And even someone who gives out a cup of water in the name of Christ says he shall not lose his reward. So even in that little, par- in that little statement there, that parabolic statement, you've got these different rewards mentioned. Uh, you've got a prophet's reward, a righteous man's reward, and a cup of water giver's reward. And you think, well... Uh, you know, why differentiate that? Why, if, 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 if reward is, be careful how I say this, I say simply eternal life, but that's probably an understatement. It's not, if, if, the word, if the reward we get is only eternal life, and that's what the judgment seat's dishing out, yes, you know, this binary yes, no, in or out thing, then why, why are we talking about levels or grades or qualities of rewards? It's, it's we're, you know, we're just in or out, and that should be it. But obviously there's more happening than just that. There's an indication also that how we live our life now and the things we do and the things we don't do have an impact on the quality of our reward and how our reward is played out in the future. There's some very interesting little statements. Um, Matthew 7 is interesting. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, again, thinking that through, you know, the, the idea I always thought was if, you, if, you, you know, if you're a bit harsh judging people, then the Lord will reject, he'll be harsh to you and just reject you at the judgment seat. But that, that seems a little, it's a, it's a little bit extreme, isn't it? It's a little bit, um, uh, you know, the, the Lord, we can be forgiven of all our sins, can't we? There's, there's no, in our context, unforgivable sin. So if we, we have done something that's a little bit judgmental, and we may feel guilty about that later on in our life, even decades later, we think, gee, I was a bit judgmental back then. And it's probably too late to rectify it. And we think, well, that's blown it for me. I'm out of the kingdom because I'm going to get judged as I judge somebody else that it's something I did 20 years ago. And, and that's probably behind the guilt of people in the rest homes or wherever who are thinking, how am I going to face the judge when I did that? Well, I think there's no sin that's unforgivable. Um, so how does that literally play out? Maybe, I'm just suggesting, maybe because we've acted that way, that there is, we are judged harshly by our Lord and rebuked for those things and, and told off about them by our Lord in a, in a severe way, in, 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 a, in a proportion of how we've treated others in our life and, and brought maybe grief or, uh, or, or, or pain to somebody else. Um, judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. So maybe that plays out in some way. 2 Corinthians 9, But I say, he that sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which sows bountifully shall reap bountifully. Um, this, this, this idea, of if, if you're generous with others, then God will be, in a sense, generous with you. Now, how does that play out? Is that just about, any, does that just refer to an in or out scenario? Or the way 
we're dealt with at the judgment seat and the rewards we receive are built into that, into that process. Here's one we've been looking at with Jonah. Matthew 6, lay up, which means amass or build up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust does corrupt. Now, you know, Matthew 6 is full of this idea of reward, isn't it? It's interesting that it uses this plural treasures in heaven that would indicate some people have more treasures than others. It's like a, like a bank account um, sort of terminology, isn't it? We, we lay up in store treasures in heaven. Is, is there some way in which those of us who are, who are generous with our money and do it behind the scenes or, or give of our time and our effort and do it with no one, without reward and praise, who, who, who carry on their life without getting rewarded from others, is there a sense in which they are building up a reservoir of treasures that they will receive, not necessarily salvation for, but they will receive reward for in, in a particular way? And it's interesting when you look at that, that, you know, you look at the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord says about the Pharisees, I suppose he's talking about the Pharisees primarily, he says they've received their reward. In a sense, they got recognition, they got honour, they got glory, they got position, they got status. All those things are very important in that, you know, uh, Judeo-based culture in which they live that, you know... um, they got those things. If that's the reward we're going to get, then, then, then it's got to play out some way um, in a similar fashion on the other, on the flip side in the in the kingdom. So just try and keep those things in mind. Um, Luke fourteen. I, I'm just when we look. I'm just trying to get us now as we look at some of these verses that the we we look at rewards. We can simply read reward being eternal life, but there seems to be a, a specific aspect to it when. You know, you do, and there's a quote we'll look at in Ephesians 6 in a moment. It says, Whatsoever a man does, he will be rewarded. Whatsoever good thing he does, he'll receive a reward. There's this specific aspect of that. Whatsoever. It's not just a general outcome of his life. He gets, he's done more good things than evil and he gets sort of eternal life for that. But there's this um, specific nature to it. We'll get to that in a minute. Luke 14. And thou shalt be blessed. Oh yeah, if you, do, if you invite people who can't invite you home, he says they can't recompense you, they can't sort of pay you back. There's a special blessing for you going to be recompensed at the judgment seat of the just. And you say, well, that's just, again, only eternal life. But there's a special blessing for those who, who do that, who show that generosity, who, who go that extra mile and, and, and do that. Sorry. I was just thinking of the resurrection of the just, it might be a bit of a clue there that he's actually talking about the rewards because he's only talking about the just. The ju- yes, that's, that's a good point actually. The rever- Exactly. Even though the resurrection involves other people, but it's the, the just are, are rewarded in that way. Yep, that's a good point. It's actually, you know, we're going to talk about in a moment. You know, Luke twenty thirty six says uh, those that are obtained, those that are worthy of the resurrection shall be made equal unto the angels. And we sort of get this idea there's a quality in that whole process, but We'll get to that. I'm jumping ahead. Sorry. Settle down, Darren. <laughs> Even we said that the idea of teachers um, being receiving a stricter judgment, and I, and I sort of made the sort of a facetious type point. Why, why would I, if, if I believe that was in relation to my eternal life, I'm a little bit crazy to be a teacher, aren't I? Because why, why would you put yourself in a, in a harder judgment zone that would increase the likelihood of me being rejected if you think of that logically why would I be a teacher in my, my meeting at Gosford when I'm going to get stricter judgment if stricter judgment relates to my eternal life then man I'm, it's a little bit crazy for me to do that and, and uh, 
And I believe teachers will get stricter judgment, but they'll, be, they'll get rebuke from our Lord and they'll be, they'll be um, set straight on a lot of things. We'll, we'll get to that as we go through as well. But I'm just trying to put these ideas in our mind before we draw any conclusions. Again, there's so many, so many verses here. Let, let's look at the Ephesians 6 one. I guess we just turn to Ephesians 6. You can see why I've put them up on the slides because we'll be here all day if we look at every single one. But and as you read it, you, you may think I'm, I'm just stretching a little bit too far or reading too much into it, but I, I can't help feeling there's got to be an explanation for the specific aspects of these rewards when they're mentioned. Um, Ephesians 6. It's verse 8, it's the one we're going to focus on, but it's talking about servants don't just do things to please your master you know, and to do it for him and not do it when he's not looking, etc., but do everything unto the Lord. Um, verse 7, with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Verse 8, so here you've got someone who works, you could apply this to your own job or you can apply it to a real service situation. The attitude you take to the job, you could say, well, I'm going to do the bare minimum to keep my boss happy. Or I'm going to work unto the Lord, which is this higher ideal, which is what you know, Matthew 6 and 5, 6 is all about, reaching this level of perfection. You can choose which way you go. He says if you choose to go the harder route, the harder option, then there's a reward, a special reward in that. And so he says, um, knowing, verse 8, that whatsoever good thing, the, the, King, the New King James got whatever, sort of just trying to drill down to this specific aspect. Whatever good thing any man does, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. So the principle applies in all parts of our life. But just think about that whatever. You know, it's, it's a specific thing, a, a, a specific course we choose to take, in our, whether it be our job or our ecclesial life or our family life. We take a specific course, the higher calling, the higher road, whatever you want to call it, there's a specific reward for that that may be above and beyond the granting of immortality or, or the acceptance into the judgments at the judgment seat into the kingdom. We've talked about Matthew 6 already, about being rewarded. And it runs all the way through Matthew 6. Um, Galatians 6, Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Again, there's, there's the, the, the results and the amount of effort are put, uh, are proportional and connected there. There's this interesting little phrase, and, and I don't know, you could read, you can maybe read too much into it, because it could just be a simple flourish or a, an expression, but it's, it's got, it just makes you think. In 2 John 1, or 2 John verse 8 really, it says, look to yourselves that you lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Now what's the difference between a full reward and a normal reward? Is, is there a is there a max reward? Is there, if we, if we lived our life according to Matthew 5, 6 and 7, there's a full reward and there's something lesser than that if, if we don't. So he's saying, look to those things which we have you know, taught you about and, and receive the full reward. Maybe, maybe it's, as I said, maybe it's just an expression, but uh, it, it implies something that we need to think about. Now we can go on and on and on. I'll just flick through these very quickly. Here's some examples of the examples of um, proportionality in, in, in rewards. We saw it in the parable already. Parable of the pounds have authority over ten, uh, ten cities, five cities, etc. 
But even there's other little hints as you go through the Gospels, for example. Remember the, uh, the story where the, um, the mother of the sons of Zebedee or Zebedee's wife comes and says to Jesus, a special request to Jesus, can my sons sit on your right hand and on your left? Which was a, a position of honour. It's been part of the inner, the inner court or the inner clique of a, of a, of a, of a kingdom, isn't it? To sit there in that, in that sort of close proximity and be part of the inner group. It's a great seat of honour. Now, Jesus doesn't say, oh, don't be silly. There's no such thing in the kingdom. We're all equal. Unto the like, he doesn't say that. He says, well, that, that's not mine to give. My, my father will actually grant that, that um, blessing, which indicates there may be an inner group that are associated with Christ in a much more closer way, an intimate way, than others in the kingdom. And there is that, those positions, those job descriptions are genuine. There are, there are somebody, there are people that are going to be on the right hand and on the left. He doesn't deny the reality of those positions. He says that's God's, in fact, he confirms them by saying they're God's, uh, that's God's prerogative to grant that. Daniel 10, and most of us are aware of this little scenario. And again, as I said before, we, we, you know, equal unto the angels. What does that mean? Does that mean we're all equal like the angels? Because the angels are not equal, are they? We don't quite know how that hierarchy of the angels came about, whether it's based on their performance in a previous era or epoch or even another universe. We don't, we don't know really where, where the angels came from and where they're, why there is a hierarchy of both position and, and uh, knowledge amongst them. But there is. There really is. And there are angels called archangels. There are angels that have more abilities than other angels, that have more um, knowledge than other angels. There are angels that have special jobs. There's, that, there's an angel in Daniel called Palmoni, who's the wonderful numberer, who's in charge of numbers. So I think, you know, accountants have got to, you know, that's, that's, that's the dream of every accountant. That's, no, I'm only, no, that's probably taken it too far. I think, I think I've, I've, I've reached that, that limit. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Michael is called, in, in this little story in Daniel 10, most of you know it, I'm sure, but the younger ones may not be aware of it, but the, the, this angel that come, Daniel prays, this angel comes to him, Three weeks later, and says, "Look, I'm, I, I heard your words. I've come for your. I've responded to your words, but I got held up um, by uh, I got by the, was it the Prince of Persia or Prince of Greece? I can't remember. The Prince of Greece. I got held up trying to do something in world affairs, and I I was being resisted, and I couldn't fulfil the job. And so this other angel was sent. Michael was sent, chief angel. So again, you got this idea of hierarchy." Not just hierarchy in position, but hierarchy in ability, it would appear. He comes along and he fixes the problem up for me, and I, I needed his help. And as I said, that's, that's interesting, not just rank, but also ability. Now, does that translate into the kingdom as well? When we're in the kingdom, are there saints that have more ability and, and are given more um, power in, in some sort of physical sense or, or, or mental sense, uh, that they can do things that other saints can't? Maybe, maybe, that... that if the analogy of being like under the angels carries forward into immortality, then that, that is a reality, isn't it? In, in some way. And, and, you know, when we think about our life in the kingdom, it, we're not robots, are we? And God never wants us to be robots. He always wants us to, um, to use our, our mind and our faculties to do things. And, and he, he always makes it that we've got to, you know, arrive at decisions and, and make certain calls. Now, I think that it's hard to imagine that goes out the window when we're in the kingdom and, and that all of a sudden we sort of make every perfect decision in every perfect way. That, that there would appear, and that little example would help, would help us come to that conclusion, that, that there is a sense that as we reign as kings and priests that we do make decisions and there may be other 
saints that we can call on to help us in certain circumstances. So without taking it too far, that is a little window, I think, into, into that reality. I mean, there's other ones I haven't looked at, but, you know, there's that story of the prophet Micah who makes this, um, to Jehoshaphat, and he makes this, uh, little word picture. He says, God called the angels together in heaven and, and asked their opinion on how he's going to, um, change the course of events in Israel. And one angel suggests this, another angel suggests that, and one said, why don't I go down and be a lying spirit in, 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 in the, the prophet's mouth? And, and God says, yeah, okay, go with that. Now, how literal that is, I don't, I don't know, but it's interesting that it, it portrays these immortal beings as all coming up with suggestions and ideas and, and eventually one of those ideas being implemented. So again, it's, it's interesting to think about that in, the, in terms of our, our future. There's the famous one here that all of us would know as well, Matthew 19. The apostles are given, or will be given, uh, to sit on the, the honour and the glory and the privilege of sitting on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Sort of a specific role, a specific position of honour and, and, and power that you and I will not get. Okay, So that there is a sense of inequality in, in that outcome. Actually, this is, this is a very interesting one. Maybe we'll look that up as well. Let's look at Matthew 19. Let's look at a couple of these. Promise I won't go much longer. Just wanted to plant the seed here. Matthew 19. Here's the, the context here is, um, you know, the uh, rich young ruler who's come and said, you know, what must, I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord sort of delves into that attitude and says, well, and, and he gives him this, answer that really is specific to him it's not to all saints of all time he says give everything away and sell all that you have give it to the poor and come and follow me because he's he's focusing on the need of that particular man at that time um um the apostles hear that response and and they start thinking and peter says in verse 27 it's usually always peter isn't it who jumps in with these little things verse 27 peter says then peter says unto him behold we have forsaken all and followed you what will we have thereafter? And you think, well, Jesus could say, what a stupid question, Peter, you idiot. Of course you're going to have eternal life. What, is, there, is, it, is, there, is there anything else matters? Is there anything else? What else would you want? Well, Jesus sort of doesn't couch the, question, the answer quite like that. Verse 28, Jesus says unto them, Verily I say unto you, to you, to the group, that, not just to Peter, they which have followed me in the regeneration, when, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, shall also sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, that's what the verse we just looked at. Now, we, we were, all, we're all pretty okay with that. But read on in verse 29. So that verse 28 was to you, was to the immediate recipients. But verse 29 says, And everyone throughout all time that has forsaken house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children for la- or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and, see the, the, the conjecture or whatever, whatever and is in grammar, see the, the additional thing here, the receive a hundredfold and shall inherit eternal life. Now that's interesting. What, what does that mean? Literally, I, don't, I, I can't give you an exact answer to that question, but it implies that maybe it implies that, say, a protester from the, from the Middle Ages who is, goes and has his tongue ripped out and he, and he maintains his faithfulness despite incredible persecution sees his family persecuted all the terrible things of that experience may get a better reward than 
Darren Deporis, who's lived this pretty nice middle-class life on the beautiful central coast of New South Wales and had ate pretty good and had a pretty good life. So maybe there is in that some sort of proportionality that that there's a reward given to that person more than, say, us 21st century sort of um, got it good uh, believers. And then the next verse says in verse 30, and this is a phrase we'll finish up with, uh, thinking about, many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. And again, that is an interesting concept and we might just have a quick think about that before we finish up. This whole idea of being least in the kingdom of God, what does that mean? How does that actually play out? And is it something you've really ever thought about? What, is, what on earth does that mean, to be least in the kingdom of God as a, as a reality, as a concept? A lot of these references are in Matthew, concentrated here, but just go to Matthew 5, verse 19. Let's just try and think this through. This is, this is a really, really interesting little, little word picture. And again, again I think it's it, it also this, this little section here will reinforce the thesis of my, my whole um, set of studies, that, that there is a difference between salvation and eternal life and and being rebuked or punished in, in, in the, at the judgment seat. There is a difference. And, and uh, again, it gets, comes out time and time again. Uh, let's just pick it up in verse, verse 19. Whosoever therefore shall break... Now, now the, uh, King James has got break. Has anyone else got another rendition of that? Uh, relaxes is a good one. I think that's ESV, isn't it? Annulls, relaxes. So it's in some way watering down God's principles... So he that shall break one of the least of these commandments and shall influence others, teach men others, uh, teach men the same, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So this is a interesting little um, outcome here. And then it goes on and says, But whosoever shall do and teach, so he walks a walk and talks the talk, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, who is this person that waters down certain principles, and and and, uh, and what does that mean? Well, there, there are so many, you know there are so many examples you could think of and make of this, but you could say, well, and and you could go both ends of the spectrum. I mean, some people might when they see the word relax as the ESV's got said, well, that's somebody watering down standards or watering down sort of you know letting people do things that they shouldn't do or whatever. Or you could jump to the other end of the spectrum and say, well, that could be someone that's playing down some of those really important things in Matthew five, six, and seven, like like peace, that, that, that they're sort of the peacemakers that John has been telling us. And in the Ecclesia, instead of making peace, they're, they're making you know, division and, 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 and not talking to other Ecclesias and, and thinking they're better than everyone else. So that is also watering down the principles of God. So, so on both ends of the spectrum, I think, are relevant here. And if that affects other people, the problem's magnified. And the result of that is that person is not necessarily uh, rejected at the judgment seat. There's something about grace and his faith that, that, that means that he's accepted, he's in the pale of salvation, he's in the book of life. But there are consequences for that. And the consequences play out into the kingdom. He's called least in the kingdom of God, or whatever that means. And the other brother who's consistently teaching and doing is great in the, in the kingdom of God. Now, there's this hierarchy of words. Actually, just from <coughs> Harry Weaker's book on the studies in the gospel, Brother Whittaker comments and says... Uh, there, is a, there is here an impressive combination of severity and graciousness. How greatly the special responsibility of the teacher is accentuated. My brethren, be not many teachers, he's quoting there from James 3. 
knowing that we shall receive heavier judgment. Yet it is noted that although least, such a one may still be in the kingdom. And it's interesting, he goes to 1 Corinthians 3, which we looked at yesterday as a cross-reference there. So even though he's least, he's still in the kingdom, which is, a, which is again, maybe something we've never really sort of got a handle on. I hadn't up until I looked at this subject, that there is this interesting sort of concept. Um, let's just move along. There seems to be a bit of a hierarchy in the kingdom, in the use of these, these Greek words. Now, while we're in Matthew, let's look at uh, Matthew 18, verse 4, just, just, to, just not far away. Matthew 18, verse 4. And here's another sort of quantitative statement about our rewards in the, in, in the kingdom. Matthew 18, verse 4. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, the word great that we looked at in Matthew 5, the, 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 the brother who's a teacher and a doer, he's consistent in what he says and does, he's going to be great. That word great is the word mega. We get, you know, mega mark from or whatever. It's a mega. This is a higher word in the Greek. It's the word mekzonai, and it's, it's even higher than mega. So this brother who's just, or sister, is a humble person who have humbled themselves to be like a little child. They're meek and humble, and they take God's word into their mind and heart, and they live it. They're greatest in the kingdom of God, greater than even the teacher who is a, you know, really, really wonderful brother. He doesn't, he does, does good things and he teaches good things. But even higher than that, he's just a person who humbles themselves like a little child. They're even greater in this this little hierarchy. So, I've just made this little list up. Jesus is the greatest. The greater in the kingdom of heaven is the, the, the people that are humble in the ecclesia. Someone who's great is some, someone who teaches and does. They're actively work, doing good work for God and being consistent where they can. The least is someone who is relaxing God's principles in some way and, and, and leading others to, to, to do the same. And then the Pharisees, we're told in Matthew 5, if you're, if you're like the Pharisees, they're not, even, they're not going to be there at all. They're not going to be in the kingdom. So, so you can see that, that little hierarchical chart um, based upon those words in Matthew. Just to finish up, I might just make quick reference. We're about to finish um, Psalm 84, which we often use about the, 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 the kingdom and being accepted at the judgment seat. The psalm that says, just from memory, I'd, I'd be happy to be a doorkeeper in the, uh, you know how you know that one, in the temple. And we, we often say, well, and again, based on the scarcity view of the judgment seat, you know, I'd be lucky if I get in there crawling on my hands and legs on broken glass, and if if I just make it, I'd be happy to be like the cleaner. That, that's sort of the impression that that verse sometimes gives, or what we how we use it. When in fact, there's a couple of responses there. But one is that that, that position is not a, a lowly position at all. It's quite a very prestigious position to be that to be so closely involved with the temple worship in Israel's culture and to be part of that, keeping the door in the, in the temple is a great honour and a great... People would have you know, given their right arm to have a position like that. So it's, it's, it's sort of a, not quite the... the we use in the, in the way that is, that is correct. And based on the fact that God talks about reward so often, and you know, Matthew 5, 6 and 7 are, are classic cases and they pop up all over the place, is that the attitude God really wants us to have anyway? Does God want us to strive for rewards? And this, this is a little bit controversial because, you know, and I'll, I'll use this phrase, showing off to God. Does God want us to show off to him? Now, that's a loaded phrase, which is just to make you sort of stop and think. But 
Uh, John had talked about Nehemiah the other, I think it was John who had mentioned Nehemiah who said, you kept praying all the time, remember me for good, remember me for good. I could have sat on my laurels as the governor and had a really cruisy life, but remember me for good, God, remember me for good. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing works, not to earn salvation because that's not going to happen. That's not what it's all about. But consciously doing things in the ecclesia for other people, people that are suffering, going through hard times, all those things, there's nothing wrong with striving to do those things and to doing them to impress God and to please God. And this idea that runs through, we haven't got time to look at it now, this idea of being well-pleasing, it's a judgment seat word as well. Um, it's used in a number of judgment seat contexts, being well-pleasing. It's based on the sacrifices under the law and the sweet-smelling savour and all those concepts that we can live our lives to give pleasure to God. And if that's your objective, to please him, to give pleasure, it's, it's born out in your works and the things that you do consciously. And I sometimes think, you know, sometimes we use the, 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 uh, the parable of the... Um, I'm going off script here, so just bear with me as I ramble on. But um, the, the, the parable of the, uh, the sheep and the goats where the, the people there don't know that they've done good. You know, you know, they say, oh, when did we see you were hunger and when did we see you thirst? Really, when you delve into that parable, what they didn't know is they did it to Jesus. It wasn't they didn't know that they did it. They obviously knew that they did it. They, they went and visited someone in jail. You don't forget that lightly. But they didn't know they did it for the Lord. That was, the, that was where the connection is. He, Jesus says, if you've done it to the least of these brethren, you've done it to me. So we, we, we need to consciously do good works. It's not something that's going to magically happen somehow. Um, and uh, it's something we need to consciously do. And, and Nehemiah did consciously do good works. And Jesus tells us we've got to you know, give, he tells us, give arms in secret for the direct objective that your, your father who sees in secret is going to reward you openly. So there's nothing wrong with consciously doing those things to please God. And this is where I think young people get this, they, they sort of get, they, they, they struggle with this because they say, well, why do I have to go to the meeting? Do I go there just to impress God and to earn brownie points? Well, it's not linked to your salvation, but it's something you do to please God, that you want to give God, you want to show God your appreciation and, and, and you want to you know, be a sweet smelling savour if you want to use that term to God and, and give God pleasure. Anyway, I'm raving on, so I better finish up. Just to finish up with this little idea, we won't look at it now. It's interesting, this little analogy uh, and this little idea where when David rewards his mighty men, he actually rewards them on merit, on what they'd achieved, all the great feats that they'd achieved. It's really quite interesting. So these men all went out to the cave of Adullam, etc., and they, they, you know, it says that they were a pretty sort of motley crew, they were in debts and they were fleeing from this and that. They were sort of like us, really. They were just nobodies that were in trouble and, and, and you know, looking for something. And they come out to David and they are with David during the, the, the bad years, the trial years in the wilderness. And when David comes to power and he's made king in 2 Samuel 23 and 1 Chronicles 11, there's quite a specific response that David has. And he creates these different hierarchies and different levels. And he, there's a group called the three. And, they're the, they're the, the, and he says they're rewarded because they jumped in a pit and killed a lion or they did this. And, 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 the, and the, the feats and the acts of courage that they've shown were, were, were specifically related to the position they got in the, in, the, in the kingdom. There's this connection with them. I mean, all of his men were part of his kingdom. All of them were accepted into his kingdom. They all became his, his private army and his, you know, his immediate supporters and all that. They all got, they're all there in honour. But there were some that were given special places and special positions. There was another group called the Three. There was another rank of Three. There was another elite group called the Thirty. And it, you know, if we had time, we'd look at it. This, this guy was one of the Thirty, but he wasn't one of the Three. And this one was one of the Three, but not one of the, you know, the second Three. And they all get... They all get these, these rewards according to the, the service and the courage that they'd shown. 
So look, I, I have gone over time, I apologise. Hopefully we've just planted some seeds in your mind that we'll try and bring together in, in a future session.